Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. We start this week's episode with a statement from Boots Riley, just one of the many well-known figures publicly supporting the ongoing national prison strike. What's up? I'm Boots Riley, the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You. Check this out. There's a prisoner movement rising in this country. It's self-organized, independent, and fighting the dehumanization and brutality of the prison system. From August 21st, the anniversary of George Jackson's assassination, to September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica uprising, a coalition of prisoner networks have issued a set of 10 demands and called for work strikes, sit-ins, boycotts, hunger strikes inside all facilities across this country, state, federal, ICE, juvies, and county jails. So far, prisoner groups over 17 states have been confirmed to be participating. These 10 demands range from demanding the restitution of rehabilitation services that have been cut to almost nothing, restitution of Pell Grants so inmates can get educated, restoring the right to litigate their own cases, and into abandonment and life sentences without parole, the right to vote, and an end to forced labor and prison slavery. Prisoners themselves are a rising force for liberation, and our outside support to raise their voices and to defend them from repression is crucial. Inside, outside, all on the same side. Support the nationwide prisons. We have some updates on the confirmed prison strike activity that we'd like to share. According to the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, there have been many protests, disruptions, and unusual occurrences in prisons across the U.S. in the last two weeks. These incidents might be strike-related or they might simply be occurring at the same time. Outside organizers are pursuing leads and seeking confirmation. In their strike roundup, they've been careful to only include instances of protests that were explicitly connected to the nationwide strike and its demands. Here's the list of such activity as reported to jailhouse lawyers speak or the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee prior to September 5, 2018. In California, at New Folsom Prison and at Lancaster, there are hunger strikes. In Florida, there are confirmations of work strikes and boycotts at five facilities, Charlotte, Dade, Holmes, Appalachie, and Franklin Correctional Institutions. In Georgia, there are confirmations of work strikes and boycotts at Georgia State Prison and Georgia Diagnostic and Classification State Prison in Jackson, Georgia. Here in Indiana, at the Wabash Valley Correctional Institution, prisoners in a segregation unit initiated a hunger strike on Monday, August 27th, demanding adequate food and an end to cold temperatures in the unit. We'll have more on that next week. In Kentucky, one facility is participating in a boycott. In Maryland, at the Jessup Correctional Institution, a small group is engaged in work stoppage. In Michigan, a group of prisoners are boycotting all phone contact and payment to Global Telllink. In New Mexico, at Lee County Correctional Facility in Hobbs, New Mexico, beginning on August 9th, prisoners organized a work stoppage against conditions at the prison, operated by private corporation Geo Group. Tensions at the prison reached a tipping point prior to the date of the strike, and prisoners could not wait before initiating their protest. 
All facilities in New Mexico were placed on lockdown status on the morning of August 20th. This statewide lockdown has since been lifted except for Lee County Correctional Facility. In North Carolina, prisoners at Hyde Correctional Institution demonstrated in solidarity with the strike, and at least one prisoner has been retaliated against at Polk Correctional Institution for alleged strike activity. There are unconfirmed rumors of broader participation across the state of North Carolina. In Ohio, at the Toledo Correctional Institution, at least two prisoners began a hunger strike on August 21st. David Easley and James Ward were moved into isolation for participating, and authorities have cut off their means of communication to their outside contacts. In South Carolina, confirmations of work strikes and boycotts are at six facilities, Broad River, Lee Correctional, McCormick, Kershaw, Lieber, and FCI Edgefield. In Texas, the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee was forwarded a message dated August 23rd from inside administrative segregation within a Texas Gulf prison confirming that two people are on hunger strike in solidarity with the national action. Quote, I feel great but very hungry, and not because I don't have food, but because of our 48-hour solitary with our brothers and sisters. It's the only way we can show our support from inside SEG. Let everyone know we got their backs. Unquote. It has also been confirmed that inmate Robert Uvale is on hunger strike in solitary at Michael Unit in Anderson County, Texas, in solidarity with the nationwide strike. Robert has been in solitary for most of his 25 years inside. It is also confirmed that there is a work stoppage at the McConnell Unit in Texas. In Virginia, at Sussex 2, a group has released a communique related to the hunger strike. In Washington, at the Northwest Detention Center, representatives of over 200 immigrant detainees at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma declared a hunger strike on day one of the national prison strike. Amid fears of retaliation, 70 across three blocks participated. As of this time, seven continue to refuse food into a second week. This week, we're honoring the anniversary of the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971. The current national prison strike began on this past August 21st, the anniversary of George Jackson's assassination, and the strike is slated to end in two days, on September 9th. September 9th through the 13th mark the days of the Attica Prison Uprising, and as prisoners across the country are currently involved in their own struggles, we take an in-depth look back at what took place at this time 47 years ago. For many Americans, 1971 was a year of great prosperity and joyous possibility. But Asha Bendale explains in a 2011 article, after the Attica Uprising, that many Americans felt another kind of possibility, the possibility of revolutionary change. She says that to fully understand the Prisoners' Rebellion at Attica 40 years ago, which is the theme of this week's KiteLine episode, you have to understand what she calls the Dickensian complexity of 1971. Bendale writes, quote, It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. We were a nation of hope with the possibility of revolutionary change within our grasp. Reverend Jesse Jackson's Operation Push was born that year. Thirteen Democrats, with imaginations shaped as much by their own dreams as the Black Power and Civil Rights Movements, founded the Congressional Black Caucus. Broad swaths of the American citizenry felt empowered enough to stand up against the unjust government policies. Sixty percent of the electorate opposed the Vietnam War. I was born by the river in a little tent oh and just like the river i've been running ever since it's been a long a long time coming but i know a change gonna come oh 
blessed wheel. Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come was more than a beautiful song. It was a soundtrack that nourished the spirit of a movement. This was the best of 1971, its unmitigated hope. What that change would be and who would be included was shattered on the rainy morning of September 13th when the Attica uprising was put down by deadly force. The siege on Attica that left 41 men and 10 guards dead was filmed by TV cameras for the whole world to see. It would be an understatement to say the impact reverberates through society, and as Richard X. Clarke would say, Attica is in front of us. Attica. For the next five minutes, Polish composer Frederick Jeski will chant in his signature, progressively additive style, Attica is in front of us. What Richard X. Clarke was getting at with those words, simply put, is that Attica was not an event. It is a movement. We start this episode of Kite Line with this song to highlight how the 1971 Attica prison uprising broke through the whole purpose of prisons in themselves, a system of social control. A prison can fulfill this purpose only by reducing prisoners to active accomplices or passive recipients of their own oppression. The organizing of the Attica Liberation Faction and the time between September 9th and September 13th, 1971, was a time when that purpose was briefly suspended. The prisoners at Attica refused to be passive recipients of their own oppression by locking away power and reorganizing life in its absence. The Attica Liberation Front cooked, wrote, negotiated, and made decisions together as a unified force. While the prison was under siege, the men inside took on new roles, organized across race, religion, and gang lines, met their reproductive needs without guards and bosses, and from all reports it was a time albeit tense, of great joy. In turn, their resistance posed a serious threat to the prison and thus threatens the entire society as well. This is evidenced poetically in a letter from Sam Melville, who was an inmate at Attica Prison, and alongside Elliot Barclay and Tommy Hicks, he is said to be one of the leaders of Attica Liberation Faction. Melville was a typical Attica prisoner. He had been transferred there for trying to escape his prior custody. An ex-Weather Underground and Black Panther ally, once at Attica he started fighting, as he had done on the outside. His publication, Iced Pig, was a personal project, but in a series of events leading up to the uprising, it swiftly transformed into a collective tool for the Attica Liberation Front. He gave voice and representation to the prison population who were already fighting the state for better conditions. His letter describing this period of activity is read over another Frederick Jeffsky piece from 1972. I think the combination 
of age and a greater coming together is responsible for the speed of the passing time. I think combination of age and the greater coming together is responsible for the speed of the passing time. It's six months now, and I can tell you truthfully, few periods in my life have passed so quickly. Sam Melville was killed during the uprising shortly after writing this letter. A week after the massacre, prisoners at Attica smuggled out a statement discussing the revolt and placing it in the context of a revolutionary struggle against American capitalism. It concluded, quote, These brothers whose lives were taken by Rockefeller and his agents did not die in vain. Why? Because the uprising at Attica did not begin here, nor will it end here. Unquote. So, Let's look at the nature of the Attica prison strike and see if we can find the present-day prisoners' movement within the legacy of those actions. In doing so, we'll hold the actions of the 41 men who lost their lives during the uprising close to those struggling today. The principal leaders of the revolutionary upheavals of the 1960s and 70s were black prisoners and black freedom fighters. During that period, and at Attica in particular, there was a major shift change from the prison riots so widespread during the 1950s. Over 50 major riots occurred in American prisons between 1950 and 1953. A typical riot in the 1950s started when two prisoners overtook a guard, stole his keys, then let out all the maximum security prisoners. In the 1960s, the Nation of Islam started organizing in prisons across the country. For many reasons, Nation of Islam organizing transformed into a broader political movement. By the end of that era, the Black Panthers, or other advocates of black power, gave rise to an articulate struggle behind bars. Frantz Fanon, writing in 1963, expressed that some form of violence represents the only means by which an enslaved person can reclaim her or his humanity from the violence of oppression. This became a given to political action in and out of prison at the time. Black power groups allied with the anti-imperialist movement and third world liberation groups fighting against the war in Vietnam, military interventions in Latin America, Africa, and police violence in the American ghettos. As activism became more militant, so did the legal system and many activists and revolutionary leaders found themselves behind bars with charges designed to break their spirit for life. By 1971, former President Nixon's war on drugs had taken siege of city streets. That war is the main reason Attica's prison populations was 60% black and Latino who found themselves among white anti-imperialists in opposition to capitalism and Indochina war, Puerto Ricans fighting for independence. Networks of radicals from third world movements across the globe were linked into prisons through these arrests. The prison movement was at once urban and international. In contrast, the guards of upstate New York were white. 
Prisoners were regularly subject to race-based attacks. Guards used racial discrimination as a tool of social control. Here's former Attica prisoner Carlos Roche. I went to Attica in 1966 and was there through to September 16th, 71. That was the first time I was confronted with overt racism. The administration and the police created situations to keep the black guys against the white guys, and the white guys against the Spanish guys, and the Spanish guys against the black guys. You know, and uh, as long as they, you know, created division, they were able to control the joint. It was just a, a volatile, repressive society, you know, you, it's, it's it, it remained a powder keg, you know, it just so happened it took 71, uh, September the 9th, to explode. John Pallas and Bob Barber summarized the atmosphere of years leading up to Attica, quote, the situation at San Quentin Prison in California provides a model for the changing nature of revolt during this time of transition. In January 1967, a riot broke out involving nearly half the prison's 4,000 prisoners, resulting in cautious attempts at reconciliation by prison leaders. The self-defeating nature of such violence was acknowledged and truces arranged between various black and white groups. An underground newspaper called The Outlaw began publication. It attacked the prison system and called for unity among the newspapers. Within a year, open racial hostility had nearly ended, and a united general strike in early 1968 caused the shutdown of nearly all the prison industries. At this point, officials moved to break up the incipient organizing by transferring suspected leaders to other prisons and increasing the general harassment of everyone. The facilities of the outlaw were discovered, although the paper continued to be occasionally published outside and smuggled in. Within the next month, revolts broke out in the California prison system at Soledad, Folsom, and San Luis Obispo prisons. The Folsom work stoppage of November 1971 was the longest and most nonviolent prison strike in the history of the country. Nearly all 2,400 prisoners held out in their own cells for 19 days in the face of constant hunger and discomfort and continued psychological and physical intimidation. They issued a 31-point Manifesto of Demands and Anti-Oppression Platform, labeling prisons the, quote, fascist concentration camps of modern America, unquote and calling for an end to the injustice suffered by all prisoners regardless of race, creed, or color. The demands focused on the denial of political and legal rights to prisoners and the exploitation involved in the work programs inside the prison. Prison riots as micro-revolutions, an extension of state-centered theories of revolution, says, quote, The New York Department of Corrections in 1970 and 1971 attempted to enact a liberal prison policy but was hamstrung on the one hand by budgetary constraints and on the other by the intransigence of the custodial staff, which successfully resisted these changes." Unquote. Also, a federal court had ruled in 1970 that prison procedures violated prisoners' rights of due process. A new commissioner of corrections for the state, Russell Oswald, appointed January 1, 1971, repeatedly promised Attica inmates that reforms would be forthcoming. 
but Oswald was frustrated by staff resistance and lack of funds, so most of the promised reforms were never implemented. The budget crunch also created a staff shortage at Attica, such that routine inspections were reduced and faulty gates, which later failed, were not detected. This was the environment during the hot summer of 1971. On August 21st, Black Panther Party Field Marshal George Jackson was murdered in San Quentin Prison. Guards reported that he was trying to escape. The piece, after the Attica Uprising, says, quote, Jackson's seminal work, Soledad Brother, a collection of prison letters published the year before, had firmly planted him in the seat of the hearts of people the world over, but with no group more so than America's prisoners. The next day, at Attica, the response to Jackson's death was a silent prayer and fast. 800 men, African-American, Latino, and white, arrived for the first shift at the mess hall, all wearing black somewhere on their clothing, and sat in silence, refusing to eat. The staff knew something was brewing. Jackson's death has sparked uprisings in other prisons, but Attica, with its fortress-like construction, seemed to an arrogant administration to be immune to such unrest, unquote. Prisoners are often very limited in the forms of protest they can do. That little action taken after the assassination of George Jackson was a simple victory, but one that brought the inmates closer together. A month later, a prisoner hit a guard. The authorities blamed the wrong guy, and everybody knew it. An already generalized mistrust in the staff of Attica hit a boiling point. On September 9th, 1,200 people worked together to constrain the 38 guards. They read out the demands for basic human rights they thought they were already promised by Oswald. The demands of Attica reflect the international movement of the time. They were demanding their power, their validity in the face of a wider injustice. In a death penalty state, amnesty after the riot was over was the most important demand to them. In the days that followed, the Attica Liberation Front demonstrated above all else that the strategy of unity was not just ideologically important, but a concrete manifestation of its practicality for revolutionary victory. The Front lived by its slogan, the solution is unity. All reports indicate that there was complete racial harmony in the yard. Journalist Tom Wicker, a member of the Observers Committee, noted, quote, the racial harmony that prevailed among the prisoners, it was absolutely astonishing. That prison yard was the first place I have ever seen where there was no racism, unquote. As George Jackson concluded, quote, Only the prison movement has shown any promise of cutting across the ideological, racial, and cultural barricades that have blocked the natural coalition of left-wing forces at all times in the past. So this movement must be used to provide an example for the partisans engaged at other levels of struggle. Unquote. Here's ex-Attica prisoner Joseph Jazz Hayden. After that, they made concessions, as they always do. And before long, they took them back because there weren't rights given. No rights were given, only privileges. After the Attica uprising also has this passage. It was raining the morning of September 13th, Bobby Harrison recalls over the phone on another rainy day 40 years later, standing beside his mother's graveside. Every time it rains, I'm right back there. Helicopters now buzzed overhead. State troopers and guards from Attica and other prisons were positioned on rooftops with all manner of firepower. Machine guns, 
big game rifles, shotguns. Then, without warning, the shooting began, the bullets as indiscriminate as the expanding cloud of poison. It lasted about seven minutes. Men were being picked off, Bobby Harrison says, his voice rising. A friend of Harrison's named L.D. Barkley, who had been very vocal on the bullhorn the leaders used to address the crowd, and who was in Attica for a minor parole violation on a previous charge of forging a check, was shot 15 times at point-blank range. Smith and Noble were shot multiple times, but survived. In the end, 10 guards and 29 prisoners died on the morning of September 13, 1971. Another four people died under uncertain circumstances over the course of the previous days. Early reports blamed the hostage deaths on the prisoners, saying they slashed the guards' throats. But every autopsy would determine that to a man, all the victims were killed by gunfire ordered by the state of New York. After the attack, prisoners were made to lie face down in mud and feces. They crawled from D yard to A yard, where they were forced to make their way through a gauntlet of guards who beat them with anything they had. Inside the cell blocks, guards had littered the floor with broken bottles. Prisoners walked if they could, and if not, they were made to crawl on top of the glass and then were shoved into the six by nine foot cells. Albert Victory remembers being in a cell with ten other men. He says, For most of us, our gunshot wounds went initially untreated. Some of us were taken to the hospital in trucks that contained the bodies of the dead. But only the most seriously injured, I only had two gunshot wounds, we were sent to the prison hospital. When I went to the prison hospital, I was beaten the whole way there, beaten the whole way back. Many reports of the Attica uprising note how in the immediate aftermath, life had returned to normal. Echoing the words of Richard X. Clark and considering the growing prison population from 300,000 in 1971 to 2 million in 2018, we tend to disagree. The prisons of today are worse than Attica could have ever imagined. Racist regime, ice despair, just like Attica, is ahead of us. But the more we do, the harder it gets for them to stop us. The Attica Liberation Front stands as a lesson to everybody fighting for liberation everywhere. Attica is in front of us, and we have to stand behind it. In the spirit of great songs from 1971's Billboard Top 40 charts, Thanks to everyone who contributed to this episode. Please join us next week for a recap of the national prison strike and updates from the inside, including other calls from prisoners currently inside the South Carolina and Indiana prison systems. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at kiteline at wfhb.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash kiteline radio. Or you can subscribe to our podcast via iTunes KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, 
Its contributors or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening. Sometimes I fold my arms, I say...